this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track. But there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. Have you ever stopped to wonder why a big company would acquire your business? I mean, with all the resources in the world, why wouldn't they just compete with you? Well, the answer comes down to how well you branded and differentiated your business. Because at the end of the day, the acquirer is going to make a very simple calculation. They're going to ask themselves, is it easier and cheaper for us to simply compete with your business? Or have you built such a differentiated value proposition, such a well-branded company that competing with you would take longer or cost more money than simply buying you. And that's a lesson that my friend Scott Moore learned. Scott started the Maple Street Biscuit Company and sold it to Cracker Barrel for a cool $36 million. Now, why would Cracker Barrel want to buy the Maple Street Biscuits Company. Cracker Barrel, by the way, is if you've ever gone down the interstate in the United States, you've probably seen those restaurants. And what's interesting is Cracker Barrel owned a biscuit company that sold, for intents and purposes, a similar product. It's called Holler and Dash. They're both biscuit companies. Why would Cracker Barrel, this NASDAQ traded, you know, hundreds and hundreds of stores, be interested in Little Maple Street? Well, they realized that what Maple Street had done was built a culture and a brand defined by a vocabulary that they used internally and externally that would be so hard to compete with that it made it worth it to them to acquire Maple Street rather than simply compete with them. Here to tell you Scott Moore's story is Scott himself. Scott Moore, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Great to be with you, John. So I feel kind of out of the loop. So I'm in Toronto where we have terrible winters and we don't have biscuits, but you started this company. And if I lived in Florida, you would, I would definitely know and have enjoyed your product. Tell me about Maple Street. What, what, what were you guys offering? Yeah. We call what it do you offer? Yes. It's um, a comfort food with a modern twist. Um, when we designed this, we wanted to have a concept that was a destination, not just an option. And so for where I live, there's lots of different diners you can go to. And I go to those, but they basically have the same menu. Um, I'll get the um, uh, sausage and cheese omelet, white potatoes, cup of coffee, and I'm good to go. But we wanted a menu that was built in such a way that if you liked what we had, you had to come to us to get it. And so there was this modern twist that um, would make us a destination. That said, we wanted it to be approachable food. Um, so we want people to say this, John, that I've had it, but I've never had it that way before. Hmm. You know, if enough, um, I call it food with an opinion. And if enough people like our opinion, we have a compelling concept. <laughs> so the squawking goat is one of our favorite ones that people Which have. one? Say it slowly again. 
Squawking goat. Squawk and go? Squawking goat. Okay, what is that? <laughs> uh, have, have, do you like goat cheese, John? I do, yeah. And then this will be a favorite. And, um, and this is what's crazy, too, is that um, Chef Amanda Freitag, who's on Chopped Food Network show, came into our store and tried it and actually called, and they put us on TV about the squawking goat. But it's, it's our fresh-made biscuit. Um, we use a winter wheat artisan flour. We have some frozen butter that we shred and drop in there. We fold that in into layers. Um, we bake those fresh all day long. Um, and you can see there's a maple table right at the front of the open kitchen, seeing the biscuits we made. On top of that, we take an all-natural chicken breast. We um, have our own breading, which has a good crunch and a little bit of spice to it. And then we take You're a goat. you me a hungry dude. That's what we watch. <laughs> That's the idea. Um, we take a fresh goat cheese medallion, and we take um, uh, some special breading on it. And then we put it on the grill, and that kind of melts the goat cheese, but then also gets some crisp on that um, uh, breading that we put on top of it. Put that on top of the chicken, and then we have a house-made pepper jelly that we take and we pour all over that. And then it's all on the biscuit. So you're going to need a knife and fork to eat it. It's got a little sweet, a little bit of heat, um, and and it's almost like a a sweet and sour chicken biscuit. Um, So people um, have had biscuits and fried chicken but they've not had it with goat cheese and pepper jelly. And so you come to there, it's approachable. You know that food. You've had it, but you've never had it that way before. And then again, if enough people like our food with an opinion, um, then they have to come to us to get it. How do you come up with names for your dishes? What's the process look like? Yeah, it's um, internally. And so this is, Everything about Maple Street has been a community story. So we're a mission-driven company. Help people serve others, be a part of the community. We don't call our locations restaurants. We call them community stores. And they're all called by the community. They're in there and they're run by a community leader. But with that, when we were evolving this, for five months, we did food throwdowns at my house on Thursday nights. And we invited my friends and neighbors over to my house and we would make food for them. And they had a little spreadsheet where they would rate and rank the food. And so when it came time to even name Maple Street as a company, um, I sent out to all those 40 people um, a bunch of different names. I gave them 30-some choices on names. And we have some maple syrup in our biscuits. And so some of the names had maple in there. I sent it out to them and said, hey, if we're going to name the company, which of these resonates? Overwhelmingly, Maple Street Biscuit Company came back as the name for the company. Uh, And um, I sent it back to them and said, well, I, I overwhelmingly, this is what everybody said. I said, but I'm not sure I can find a location on Maple Street for our location. Uh, Cause we we're only talking about one store at that time. Um, is that okay? And they all said, no, people get it. Maple Street is coming to communicate with. So the community has helped us name the company and even helped us name the food as we went along. Um, and so um, the squawk and go ended up what was originally was there was what's called the squawk on the street, which was a biscuit with that fried chicken and the pepper jelly on it. And then there was the loaded goat, which had the biscuit with the fried chicken and the goat cheese. Eventually a guest came in and said, hey, can I get um, pepper jelly with my loaded goat? We said, sure. And so we tried it, put it together. It was like, perfect. And then it became the squawking goat. What is your background? Because you, when, when did you start Maple Street? It was 2012? Or November 2012. Yeah. I had spent 30 Incredible. years in the retail grocery business. Um, and 
I was in um, operations and then human resources. Um, and at Canley, when we opened up the, the first location, it, they should have failed. Small businesses fail at, you know, a fairly fast pace and sure. restaurants fail even at a faster pace and restaurants that are opened by a couple of guys who have no restaurant experience and no color to have background um, should fail at a much higher rate. Um, what I can say now is, like Steve Jobs said in his very last public speech, it was college commencement before he passed away, he said he could look over the years and connect the dots, that the experiences he had prepared him to go do what they did at Apple. And, and I can say the same thing. Um, I didn't have restaurant background, but the experiences that God took me through for those 30 years in the grocery business prepared me for the day when I had to go do something on my own. I always worked for these companies who were not the market leaders. They were in turnaround situations and struggling. In fact, that's why the last company brought me in and um, in the HR role. And But going through those experiences provided me insights and learnings that when the time came, I needed to go do something on my own. Those lessons were very valuable. How did you finance the growth? What was the, the way you kind of yeah. funded the business? So I started out with the first store. I paid for it myself. And um, uh, it was uh, a, a crazy thing. Um, it, since it was a second-gen site, it was a former Moe's restaurant. Um, and they just said left everything that was in there. So I told um, uh, my partner, I said, we're going to spend 35000 and we're going to remodel it in eight weeks. We're going to open it, and you'll never know it was a Moe's. Um, the team now says that was my first of many unreasonable goals that I have set for them. <laughs> um, but they always go do them, and they can happen. And so that was the first set of funding that we did. Um, the second store, um, I put up the um, dollars for it as well. Then on the third store, I took an, an investor in with us, and which funded stores three and four and five to get us there. At that stage, um, I realized that we had an opportunity, I think, to go serve in a lot more communities. And so um, I reached out to a guy who worked with me in the grocery business and said, I, I need to put this five-year plan together. I think we've earned the right to think in an expansive way. I said, do you know anybody can help me with it? And he said, yeah, me. And I said, you're a CFO at another company. And he goes, no, I can go help you. And he'd been watching our story all along. So he came and helped me put the five-year plan together um, and what that looked like. And um, as we um, uh, took a look at that five-year plan, we put two models for us to manage our growth um, and to fund it. One was we did what we call these joint venture partnerships, is that um, for individuals would bring capital to the table, basically $150,000, um, they would have a joint venture with us. And we would split the profits, 51% for the company, 49% percent for them and so they could have this investment in a joint venture with us and so we'd own those, com those units together um, those um, had good economics and so um, we had a couple of different individuals who did multiple sites like that um, through this process then we started um, looking at how do we fund the growth and expand the company store's footprint completely. And so for the first time, we um, went to a bank and worked through our plan. And um, that really funded the rapid growth for us at that point. And so there's really just four different stages. Myself, 
bringing on individual investor, doing the joint venture partnerships. Then we proved the concept and the model to the point we had credibility. We could go to the bank and then fund our growth till, um, of course, we were acquired by Cracker Barrel. And the, the, the growth or the, the bank, was that a was secured against the business? Did you have to personally guarantee the bank debt? I did have to personally guarantee it. Um, and uh, I was the only one that had to personally guarantee it, but the bank wasn't going to do it unless I did. And, um, you know, that is part of the risk that comes um, and being an entrepreneur and growing your business. Um, so everything was on the line um, for us. Wow. But what gave you the confidence to, to sign up for that kind of bank debt? Yeah. Uh, so people sometimes ask me, were you afraid? And I don't want this to sound arrogant because um, I don't always have everything figured out, John. Um, but I was so focused on what we we're trying to do. I just didn't have time to sit down and worry about it, to be honest with you. Um, but to answer the question is we did the first two stores as a proof of concept. Uh, and we did 10 months in the first store. I can tell you the way I did my analysis um, on how we could make this work was I spent months going to restaurants who are open the same hours we are. We're basically open seven in the morning to two in the afternoon. And so I sat there in these restaurants um, and I would count how many people came in every hour and then I would look at what they ordered and I would calculate based on the menu I had how much they spent. And after a couple of months, I had a pretty good idea what an average restaurant open those hours would do per hour. Uh, and I took those numbers and I created three P&Ls. One is if we're just average, we just do what everybody as an average does, what would that look like on a, based on our expected expenses for rent and um, insurance and um, all the things that would go in the P&L. Then I did a second P&L that said, hey, if this thing really took off, would it even be worth it? I mean, if, if we doubled what we thought we would do in sales, is it, is it really going to be, you know, this is a great thing? So is there potential for a while here? But then I did a third P&L, which was half of what the average was. And as I built that model, I said, that's the P&L we're going to go manage ourselves against. We're going to build a model that if we only do half of what we think we'll do, we still at least won't lose money. And we could work through the lease, be done and move on. We were open about a month and I, it was a Saturday and it was lined up all day long. But you got no time in it. So it was finally around 1.30, got a little bit of a break. And I walked outside and I called the gentleman who was uh, our accountant. And I said, hey, I know you're planning to do my taxes at the end of the year for this business, but I need reports like today. This is drinking out of a fire hose. I got to figure out what's going on. Um, it was at that moment I knew that there was probably something more. I didn't know what that meant. But the analysis that I had done gave me enough assurance that we could pull the trigger and even if we're half of average, at least not lose money. But we ended up really being that wow P&L and earning the right to go do more. And, and why not stop there? I mean, again, forgive me for saying this, but I'll say it. 30-year career in the grocery business, um, a lot of guys that age would be like, perfect. I've done my time. Maybe I want a little lifestyle business. 
maybe I'm ready for a little golf, but you're like betting the house. <laughs> Why so, not just keep it a lifestyle business? Yeah. Um, so when the reason that my grocery career ended, we were bought up by a private equity group and they brought in their own executive team and which they should do to bring the people that they know and they trust. And our SVP of HR uh, had called me in and she had the conversation with me that the role I was in was going away, but she did say there's another role we're creating and you could post for that, raise your hand for that. And if you get it, you can keep your compensation. And um, which as an officer of a fortune 100 company is fairly significant. Um, but the difference is that that role to only have five people reporting to it. And, I currently had had 175 people on my team throughout the distributive organization. And I went home, I thought about it, prayed about it for a week. And I came back and told her, thank you. Um, but I want the last half of my life to have more impact than the first half. I didn't even know what that meant at the time, John. I just, I wasn't ready to coast into glory. Um, that was never been my goal as how do we get there? The, the goal is how can we go change people's lives? And that's why Maple Street's a mission company, help people serve others, be a part of the community. That's what we do. There's, there's people on our team, hundreds of people on our team. We have one who is a community leader for us and we found her in South Florida and she'd actually eaten in the Maple Street three years earlier and wrote, wrote a Yelp review. It was a great Yelp review. Um, we found her there. She applied for a job as community leader and she, um, we got to know her and she got to know us. We thought we could go do something. She didn't have a wrestling experience. She'd been working in a salon, was let go from that job. She had to ask her grandparents to take her daughter and take care of her because she couldn't afford to do it. She was living out of her car and she has a screenshot of her checking account where she had $4 and 53 cents to her name. We brought her on, excuse me, brought her on. We taught her how to run a community store. It was a long process, but she now has her own community store. She has her daughter living with her. We've been able to help her get her credit turned around to have her own home. And now she's going to help other people. There are hundreds of people on the Maple Street team where we get to be part of their story. So when I say that, we, it's our mission to go help you. The first store was a, a gentleman I was going to church with, and I was just going to set him up. And I said, I'll work either for six months. I'll teach you how to run it. And then I'll go figure out what I'm going to do. I've got time. I go figure it out. And it was just going to be helping somebody in their life. And every one of these stories with community stores been about how do we get to be part of somebody's lives and serve in those communities. And so for me, it was, I'd like the last half of my life to have more impact on the first half. Love it. Amazing. I want to get into the lexicon a little bit because I know branding and the words that you use like community leader, as opposed to store manager, um, was a big part of your business. Some people kind of throw away words these days. I mean, you know, the Twitterfication of vocabulary, my kids now, when they text, I can't understand. It. It's like three letters for every two syllable word. I don't, I don't get it, but, um, but you think words are important. Tell me why. Words mean something. And I think if, if supported by your actions, can have impact in people's lives. And so we use terms. Um, so we have four principles, which have guys, one mission, four principles. One of those principles, comfort, food of the modern twist. 
we've had made consistently. Another one is gracious service. Any retail shop you go to will serve you. Any restaurant will serve you, John. But gracious service is something more. Any restaurant will take your order. They'll make your food. They'll get you to go box. But gracious service is something more. So we talk about grace and how we show grace to each other as team members and how we show grace to our guests. We talk about gracious eyes. And if our actions that we show grace to other people, if our actions match up to that, people start to connect those dots. So, yeah, we don't have store managers. And I'm not saying it's bad for people who call their leaders store managers. It's just my experiences, again, taught me some things I wanted to do, some things I didn't want to do. I, to me, what does a store manager do? They manage stuff. They don't have store directors because what does a director do? They, they direct stuff. Those words mean things. Community leader is somebody who gets our heart and our mission, is going to execute our model, and they're going to go do it in a way to earn the right to go do more good. And I tell it to the team this way. Good business people earn the right to go do more good. Bad business people lose the right to go do more good. And if our mission's that important, if we want to go change people's lives, then we ought to be the best business people there is that, that, that are out there. And we should execute our model uh, relentlessly because we want to go change lives. And so for us, those words communicate that it's more than I'm just managing something. It's I'm living out a mission. And so there's a, we at this point do a whole Maple Street dictionary of words that help us communicate what we're trying to do. What else would be in the dictionary? Uh, the word ambassador. Um, so we don't have cashiers. When you come into a Maple Street, now it, it is an unusual way. I tell people, if you're going to build a restaurant, John, you would not build it the way we built it, um, which goes to what, what, what a restaurant. Two guys with no restaurant experience. Most restaurants that are going to scale are building it so you can go anywhere and not have a bad experience. They want to be able to be across thousands of units that you go in and you get what you said, but it's not a bad experience. Maple Street's built in an unusual way. And if we do it right, it can be a real wow experience. That's why um, Yelp has every year ranks the top 100 restaurants to eat at in the United States based on guest reviews. In 2017, 18, and 19, we've been in those top 100, hmm. um, which really quite a thing. Um, but what's really most exciting about that is it's not like we just had one community leader doing well. Every year it's been a different community store with a different community leader. So it was Jack's Beach and St. Augustine and then uh, downtown Greenville. Um, and those community leaders, um, by how they serve their guests, earn the right to be recognized. That was, for us, quite an accolade. So we have ambassadors that talk about it because we can have a real wow experience, but it also can be an uncomfortable experience if we don't explain it to you. And so the ambassadors are supposed to explain to you, you come in and you hear the word squawking goat um, or five and dime, um, hash brown cake or three-layer cake, and what do those mean? And then we have this community question that we ask um, every month that changes. And they have to explain to you why we're doing it. So they're ambassadors. Their job is to introduce the Maple Street way to the world, this weird way we do community. And in that, they are the purveyors of theater and romance. Um, there's this, they're calling out things back to this open kitchen, and you're seeing all that happen in the kitchen. And then we talk about romancing the food, that we talk about it because we love it. 
and we talk about it like we love it. And that's how we describe it when we're talking to our guest and it's romancing the food. Love it. Love it. How big did you get the business before you decided it was time to sell? It was about a year ago. We're at um, 30 community stores at the time. And we realized if we're going to go do this, we need the right partner to help us to do it. Um, we had grown really fast, very quickly. Um, and we did that strategically is that there are other people who want to kind of play in this space. And so we put in the plan that we were going to go from basically eight community stores to 25 community stores in an 18 month period across the Southeast of the United States. But we weren't telling anybody, we didn't do any press releases. We knew we didn't put a sign up in the stores that we were building out because what we wanted to do is to get out and be the market leader. Somebody was going to own the brand identity and the first to get to critical mass, of course, is typically the one that does. And we wanted to do it. And so we executed that plan, went from our eight to our 25 in 18 months. Um, and what we wanted anybody else who was going to be interested in playing in that space to look around and say, hey, what, what just happened? They were just a handful of stores and all of a sudden they got 25 across the Southeast. And that's kind of what happened. Um, in that process, we did a lot of things right. We did a lot of things wrong. Um, and our analysis after we did it is that we can go serve in a lot more communities, but we're going to need help to go do this. And so we started um, going through that conversation. We talked to Piper Jeffrey and um, partnered with them to help us to start the conversations. Um, and then we um, uh, started looking ourselves, what's the best plan to move forward? Uh, we have had 25 plus entities reach out to us over the years who wanted to invest in Maple Street, buy Maple Street, partner with them, restaurant groups, private equity firms, um, uh, investment banks. And I, I talked to all of them and we've had them come to the uh, office and spend time and tour stores. And I do it because it's always a learning thing. Yeah, I didn't know this industry. And so um, every chance I can get to learn, I want to always getting insight, gaining insight. But we always said no, because they didn't get who we were. We thought to the level they should. Um, and then as we're going to market, Piper's helping us try to figure that out. Um, I came up with this idea that Cracker Barrel had these holler and dash biscuit houses that they had started four years ago, but they hadn't really moved on them in, in, in the last year. There had been no announcements of new stores. I wondered, I'd, maybe they're um, going to pause on that. Maybe they'd be interested in divesting those stores and a good go-to-market strategy um, I told Piper would be, hey, if we have the chance to acquire those units and can convert those, we can increase the size of the company by 25%. We immediately have a growth story. We find the right partner who can help us fund it. Um, you know, that's a great story to go tell. And so I reached out to Cracker Barrel and um, uh, had a conversation with them. And um, they said, no, they're not interested in divesting themselves. But they said, hey, I explained to them we're going to market and what our strategy was. And they said, hey, but we'd like to talk to you. Um, and we spent 10 months really getting to know each other. And 
we went through a very detailed process of did they get us and they did a very thorough detailed review of who we were um, from the brand to the financials, the store economics, the opportunities. And um, we both came to the end and said, this is the right partnership. At what point did the conversation into the nine month quoting process go from you buying their stores to the opposite, them looking at potentially acquiring you guys? Yeah, that was within two weeks of the first call. When I called and said, hey, are you interested in talking about divesting yourself of those stores? It was within the first two weeks that they reached back to us and said, hey, we'd like to talk to you. Um, and, Scott, and Scott, give me a sense of what's going on for you personally at the time. Are you, um, are you still on the hook with the bank for the debt that you've taken on from, from eight to 25 stores? Yes. Uh, what would have happened if, if the business had failed, like how big a financial impact would that have been for you personally? Yeah, I would have lost everything. Not only did it was a personal guarantee on the loan, a personal guarantee on. So when you first start out, those first sites, landlords don't know who you are and um, they're not near, near as interested in, you know, signing a lease. And so to get some of those locations required that um, I had to put my name to the line. Um, so gosh, um, but again, remember I had done the analysis on what it, the, the three P and L's and I understood w what those looked like. The model was built that it could flex to whatever the sales were and try not to lose money. So our fourth principle for us, um, is being a sustainable business. And I confuse people with that sometimes, John, because they being sustainable as from a uh, environmental perspective, certainly. But when I first started out with this, that was our fourth principle because I said this sustainable for us means at least this don't lose money because businesses that lose money don't hang around very long. They are not sustainable. Um, and if our mission is to go help people again, we have to be great business people. So I had built it on there. We went through the proof of concept um, as well, those first two stores. And so I had a pretty good feeling of what it meant to not lose money and how to make that work in new stores. Um, I will tell you, I did get challenged when we went to Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee. It's seven hours away from Jacksonville where we started. Um, uh, the shareholders I had at the time certainly challenged me um, about why are you going seven hours away? There's a lot of places between here and there, but we had to answer this question. Were we just a regional hit? Uh, you know, you, there's certain places, cities you go to, and when you go there, you have to go to that restaurant. You know, it's, in Atlanta, Georgia, it's the varsity. They, they're just hot dogs and fries, but you go there, but it's the varsity. Um, and we, we were quite a Jacksonville story, and I had to know, are we just a Jacksonville story, or could we go somewhere else? So we went to Chattanooga, Tennessee. I'd lived there for seven years. Um, I knew a gentleman there who was looking for an opportunity. He was working at the Volkswagen plant and um, didn't have personal experience, but uh, our models designs that we could teach him. And, and so we went there. Um, and so we started, we opened that community store and we started very slow. I mean, some of the slowest sales days we've ever had. And I'm like, okay. And so I would walk across around the block. There's a Panera that was um, a block away and I'd grab Zeke and I'd say, let's go to Panera's. And I just wanted to know if there were people there. And there were people around there. 
maybe we can win them over. So we walk over, there'd be people. I'm like, we just have to stick with our model and execute it because we've seen it happen before. We got 100 days in. I went in and added the sales for the original store for the first 100 days, San Marco, and added the sales in City Center Chattanooga for the first 100 days they've been open. And they were within $1,000 total sales for the first 100 days. That's unbelievable. Yeah, and it just told me the brand was building the same way. People didn't know who we were, but it was building the same way. Um, and that has become one of our best performing stores now. Wow. What made you guys so much more profitable than a typical restaurant? In your own admission, most restaurants go bust in a few years. So what was the secret sauce that made you guys so much more profitable? Yeah. It's, um, I always have this phrase, John, say, make it easy to do right, hard to do wrong. When we built the model, um, I wanted to build it so that it, it was easy to execute against it. And I live by the 80-20 rule that typically 80% of what you do gets you, 20% of what you do gets 80% of what you want to achieve. And so we weren't trying to be everything to everybody. We're open seven to two. Um, that's your 20% of your hours for breakfast, brunch, lunch, that you're going to get your business. Um, we uh, make that as a very attractive schedule for somebody in this industry. I mean, we, we get out 90 minutes after we close. So at 3.30, they're going home. Um, and they, as a community leader, they all still have half the day left um, to go um, enjoy the day. But make it easy to write, hard to do wrong. Um, for me, we had no expertise in doing the waiter-waitress model. So we did the fast casual, um, where you order at the counter. And then you also pick up your food. When we call it the answer to the community question, you come and you pick up your food. But I also thought if it were a community store, we could go one step further and ask our guests to help us clean up after we're done. So we think of it as a community store is that we're making food for our friends and our neighbors. And that's why we use the best quality of pod products. That's why we have ambassadors and not cashiers. That's why you have an open kitchen. If you came to my house, you'd be seeing it made. But when I go to people's houses and I have dinner, um, I pick up my plates and take them to the kitchen. So we put a little signs on the table um, that said, hey, when you're done, if you could just put your, you know, we have the porcelain plates and metal silverware and um, uh, the, the coffee mugs and uh, ask them if they could put it in the dirty dish bin. Um, and I had a restaurateur come into our store and say, you know, you can't do that. So if you did paper and plastic, yes, you could do that, but not if you're going to have the porcelain um, and uh, silverware, metal silverware. And I just thought, so community store, why couldn't we? And, you know, our communities have been so great to help us um, to go do that. So if we had to add a person and on the weekends, we'd have to add multiple people out there to be picking all those up, it would impact the store economics significantly. And so we just asked our community to help and they did. Um, and so we built the kitchen, um, as a flex for the very first one. Um, we built it. So if the sales were so low, we could only have one person, one person could do the whole thing. They could be the ambassador. They could go put stuff on the grill. They could go to the deli and um, make the stuff, and bring it on the counter and call it. If we had to only have one, it'd be there. Um, and it was going to be um, originally just Gus and I and three people. That's so all we're going to hire was three people. Um, yeah, we were open a few days and I realized we need a whole lot more. <laughs> we need a few more. How many people did you have uh, when Cracker Bell bought the business? How many employees did you have? Uh, 600 team members. <laughs> Sorry, not employees, team members. <clears throat> yeah, internally, we actually call it family members. Externally, we call them team members. We call them family members internally because I tell them 
want them to understand we're in this life together um, and that we're doing life together and helping each other along. And um, the number one question that we ask of people is tell me your story. Um, it's amazing when you ask that question and then you just get quiet and listen to people, how much they'll tell you. Life can be really tough. Um, it's, in this industry, people many times live week to week. There's challenges, struggles, drama in their life. And I, I, we have some promises that we make. And one of these is it's a safe place. Um, it's the most inclusive place you should. It's a community store. Everybody's welcome. Safe place. Um, nobody's allowed to holler at anybody. That includes me. Um, I wasn't allowed to go around cussing at anybody. That includes me. For these folks, the eight hours they come, life can be tough. I just want the eight hours they come to Maple Street to be the place where they can get some rest. They're going to come in and they're going to work hard, but I don't want to have to worry when they come here. And so when we talk about gracious service, that includes our team members, our family members, that we treat each other with grace. We hold ourselves to a high standard and accountable. As I said, we got to be really good at what we do to earn the right, but it is for us um, an opportunity to be along with them in life. It sounds amazing, but the skeptic in me is also saying, but what happens when you have an employee who drops the ball, you yeah. know, uh, whatever. I mean, you can't all be rainbows and unicorns. So that's where people misunderstand grace sometimes, John. And uh, with our communities, I've had to have this conversation. Grace has its limit. So for me, our number one filter is trust. And I tell people this, um, if I can trust you, but you're not very teachable, we can do a few things. If I can trust you and you're teachable, we can do a lot of things. If you're teachable, but I can't trust you, we can't do anything. If somebody breaks trust, which can happen in different ways, which means not keeping my promises. I, I have a video that every new team member watches where I make a promise that this will be a safe place, that nobody will holler at them, that, that nobody would cuss at them. Um, and I give them my email address. And it's my job to protect the team. I'm the one person that can. And if people don't keep our promise that this is going to be a safe place, then I'm the person that has to hold them accountable. And um, I'm a person who keeps his promises. And so, yeah, it, is it perfect every time, all the time? No. Um, are we committed to it? Absolutely. And that means grace has its limits. So people who can't keep um, the trust lose the right to be on the team. Let's get into the Cracker Bill negotiation. So you're into this conversation. You've been flirting with one another back and forth a little bit. And the conversation turns to them looking at potentially acquiring you. Did you have a sense before that conversation started um, how a company like yours would be valued, what you thought maybe a fair value might be for the business? That's where Piper was a value to us. Um, at, you know, they, they have a specific restaurant division. Canley, I was, I was very cautious of going with an investment bank, a big investment bank like that. To me, mm -hmm. for them, it's just a transaction, right? Um, and so we interviewed several. And um, they actually convinced me in the restaurant division that they got who we were. Um, and so they, they, that, they understand, you know, um, what the comparables are out there, that the strength of the brand, um, what value that brought to it. 
the Goodwill. I mean, so they did some analysis and gave us a range. It was a pretty big range. <laughs> what was the range based on? Um, analysis of what other transactions had happened in the last few years um, in, in similar parts of space as we are. Um, and, um, and, and then based on what they thought the strength of the brand was on top of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm getting at is, is it a multiple of EBITDA or multiple of sales or what, how do you, how do you. Yeah. There, there's was multiple of EBITDA. That's what they. Got it. And so, so what would the range be that, that they would, they would typically quote? Um, I'm going to, I don't remember the number now, uh, what it was. Um, I remember the range, um, that what we came to the deal with Cracker Barrel was right in the middle of the dollar amount range. Uh, the 36 million was right in the middle of the range they gave us uh, that they thought we would um, be valued at. And um, yeah, John, I don't, I don't remember. I'll have, to go, I'll have to go look that up. Okay. That's, that's, that's fine. But that's uh, so, th- so it was really being driven by a multiple of, of EBITDA or earnings before interest tax depreciation amortization. Um, so the investment banker is out there, are they, are they looking for other potential suitors as well as Cracker Barrel or, or were they kind of blocked into the Cracker Barrel conversation? Yeah, they, they had other entities they were talking to um, as part of the process. And um, there was um, a lot of interest in the Maple Street brand. Uh, we've had, a, I, I guess, a pretty good reputation in this race. I said we talked to multiple entities who had reached out to us individually along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of those were going to be part of the conversation um, as well. So uh, different people were looking at us for different reasons. Um, We have a few chartered stores, franchise stores um, that we have done. That's not our go-to-market strategy. We did it because there were people who were part of Maple Street, um, community leaders who had the potential to bring in more capital and wanted to a chance to get more return. uh, And we wanted to help them as part of our mission. And, but some people looked at it and said, hey, we, we could go sell a lot of franchises. Um, so that's why some were interested in that idea. Uh, some of them uh, certainly saw us as a growth story and a growth opportunity. Um, there were some restaurant groups that thought it would be a, a good um, fit into their portfolio. Uh, so different people are looking at us for different reasons. Um, what did uh, Cracker Barrel see in you guys? Um, this is where uh, Piper said – you get the best prices when you get a strategic partner that somebody's not looking to buy you um, as a risk asset. Um, we weren't, but for entities that are, um, or somebody who's just looking to buy it to flip it um, in a couple of years, finding a strategic partner. And that's really what Cracker Barrel saw in us as a growth story. Um, they're across the United States and, um, um, you know, they've really filled out the Cracker Barrel footprint in a significant way. And the question is, okay, what's our, what's our growth story? Um, and they saw in Maple Street a similar um, environment. Um, they liked what we had done. Um, of course, they had the Holler Dash stores to compare it to. And when we looked at our store performance and that we had the potential to um, really be that growth story for them and, um, so that's our responsibility is to go find a way to serve in more communities and they'll yet use the resources uh, that they bring to the table. 
and, and we should we should be clear cracker barrel for for folks who maybe are outside the united states uh this is the um this is the 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 casual dining restaurant as opposed to the cheese brand that's owned by i guess craft right yeah yeah yeah. Got it. Okay. So they saw in you, they'd seen the biscuit business and they saw what you were doing and thought, well, wow, you guys are doing something pretty unique. This could be a sort of like rocket fuel underneath our business. How, how did conversations go from there? So, so did you actually receive letters of intent from some of the other buyers, the, the restaurant groups and so forth? We did not because we put when this became serious conversation and um, we all agreed that they could be a really good strategic partner. Um, we asked Piper uh, to table those for now. Um, it, it, and that was really from us as business people. So we have at Maple Street, we call it family support team as our corporate headquarters. We have a very lean team. And um, so to add this additional diligence, to us was a significant thing. Our, we had 33 community stores and we only had 13 people on the whole family support team. And that means accounting, you know, people paying the bills and, um, you know, taking care of the vendors and maintenance. And <clears throat> we had 13 total people, salary, hourly complete. So for us to add this diligence was significant and then try to do it with multiple companies would have just taken us off our game. And one of the lessons I learned through that growth process, John, was is you always have to focus on the business. Whatever competing interests they are that you have, you have to have a focus on running the business day to day. Those things can't go away. This business itself doesn't run it on autopilot. And um, so in going through this, one of my objectives was we had a, we have to keep running the business, growing the brand, executing our model, as well as going through this diligence. So we only had the capacity to do one. I didn't have time to deal with five entities and go through there. And so when this became the viable option, we asked Piper, hold on those. We'll go through this process. If we get to a point where we think, hey, you know what? We need to consider others. We'll come back and talk about that. And maybe we can use the diligence, which we've done in going through this process. But we never got to that point. And in retrospect, do you think you left, is it possible you left money on the table by not doing the classic sort of playing one off the other? And how do you kind of reconcile that in your, in your mind? Yeah. So it's possible. I don't know that. I, what I can say is Piper said, when we came to the final deal, they thought it was a very fair offer based on the market um, that we're in. And um, they, they thought that we had made a really good deal. What I know is as much as the, the dollars are important, they were not the all important choice for us. I said, I wanted the last half of my life to have more impact. I, I didn't want to go anywhere. Um, and I did offer when the team and I said, we were going to go do this and the way we did it, everybody got to participate in some way. Even our community leaders all got part of the transaction. Um, the executive team um, got part of the transaction. They 
they were the ones who were going to make this happen if it was going to happen. And I offered to say, hey, if a private equity group comes up and says, hey, we like it and it's the right offer, um, but they want their own leader, I'm willing to step aside. This is not about Scott. That's not what I wanted to do. Fortunately, Cracker Barrel looked at it and said, this is a very founder-driven company, and um, that, we believe, is mission critical. And so, although we want to do this transaction, we'll only do it if you come along, Scott, which I was excited because that meant we could continue to carry out the mission and that I could go do this and with a lot more community leaders and serve a lot more communities and have resources I've never had before to go do it. We've always been this scrappy startup, you know, looking for every nickel, dime, and dollar to go do that next community store. And You're having your customers bust their own tables. Unbelievable. I know. That's <laughs> what we had to do to make it work. And, um, I love it. And now we still think that way. We're still, even though we have resources, those things that have made us successful to this point, won't change. Uh, I want five years from now for Cracker Barrel um, to look back and say, this was the best decision we ever made. Um, and I want that to be earning us the right to go serve in more communities. Um, and so we'll keep doing it the way we've done it. So more important than what price we got at the end of the day, for me was the right partner that was going to let us go live out our mission in more ways. Um, that, that was a critical piece. Um, so I wanted everybody to get rewarded, um, but I want to have the right partner as well. And how do you reconcile in your own mind the, the, the trade-offs of, of continuing to run as an entrepreneurial leader in a bigger company? Um, you, you've worked in a big company for 30 years. You had this entrepreneurial experience. Does it ever feel like, oh my gosh, I've got, I've, I've gone back. It's, it's Groundhog Day. I've gone back and I'm in the big, big yeah. company again. Do, do you um, ever feel that way? Yeah. Well, we did joke around that for the first time in eight years, I have a boss. Um, <laughs> um, you know, How does that feel? Um, it's not all bad. So it's interesting. My, my, my pastor had asked me a few years ago, do you struggle with pride? And he asked me that because maple street had done so well and so many accolades came out there and i had to think about this question and i came back to him after a few days and told him i, said, I don't think i struggle. i mean we all struggle with pride in some fashion but i don't think it's the big thing. i said i think with the big danger to me at this stage is i really have nobody to tell me no in my life any decision about in the world that i'm living in the store design or the model or what there's nobody to tell me no. Um, and I think that that can be a, a tough thing and maybe a dangerous thing for folks and it's good to have accountability. So it's not all bad to have somebody who can have a conversation with you, which can challenge your thoughts and you have to listen to it and consider it. So <clears throat> I think that part's good. With that said, this is one of the beauties of the way Cracker Barrel um, has partnered in its acquisition. It's a standalone brand. They like what we've done. Sandy, the CEO, is very committed to um, the mature brand, not putting their influence and fingerprint on 
this <clears throat> startup growth story brand. And so nobody at Maple Street reports to anybody at Cracker Barrel except for me. And I report to the CEO, to Sandy. And um, she has been true to her word on that for the four months we've been doing this together. Um, I, I say this um, to the team repeatedly is that if I knew five months ago what I know now, we'd still do the transaction. That's um, the ultimate endorsement. Did you, did you go into the negotiation with that as a stipulation that you, would, you weren't going to report to some regional executive vice president in charge of distribution or something like that? Like, was it important to you that you report directly to the CEO? I guess I just always assumed that would, would, would be the way it was. Um, mm -hmm. And that was always Sandy's posture about it as well. Um, I guess if it, the conversation had came up that it would be something different, I probably would have had some pause, but it just never came up. Why do you think your pastor asked you if you struggle with pride? Uh, first, he was one of those individuals in my life um, who could look at me and challenge me, um, which I wanted. Um, he was actually younger than me, but he had great credibility and he had invested in me in a way and hopefully I in him that um, he had credibility and authority in my life. And um, he knew um, that, that I am not a perfect person and that uh, I have struggles, um, but he also wanted the best for me and he wanted to be that person. Um, and he was entering the right to really make me think about what drives me and what are the downsides, what are the qualities that could put me at risk in life. And pride's one of those. And Meaning he thought you had too much of it or not enough? Um, he, I, don't, I don't think he had an opinion based on what he'd seen in me either way. What he had was a responsibility to challenge me to think through what's the motivations in my life. What are the motivations in my life? And what, what were they playing out? And pride is something I think a lot of people struggle with and specifically people who had maybe been on the journey that, that I, he, he had seen me through that whole journey. And um, so Maple Street has such a strong brand, John, is that people, when they find out that, um, I'm the CEO at Maple Street. Their first response typically is, man, I've been in there. I love that food. I love your stuff. <laughs> yes. And he hears that all the time. Um, I gave him a hard time because there's been like eight or nine pastors or priests um, who have used the Maple Street as an illustration. We talk about gracious service and there's this illustration and he never did. Um, I said, man, I have to go to some other church. Um, and, <laughs> um, but he had heard that for you these accolades. And I think rightfully so, you know, and challenge me is, you know, people keep telling you really good things about yourself. Sometimes you start to believe them. And we are not perfect. I am not perfect. We are not at all where we should be. I, I, there's two things I talk to the team about all the time, all the time is what can go wrong? How good can we be? What can go wrong is our responsibility to manage risk in any of its fashions. But the question is how good can we be? And, I can tell you, we can be a lot better. We have not arrived. And so he rightfully asked the questions and challenged me. Um, but it really did make me think then based on, you know, my takeaway is 
I need to make sure I create space in my life for people to, to challenge me and to have the ability to say no. I got to ask, did, did, did you get rid of the bank loan? <laughs> that was part of the deal. Uh, Please tell me that's gone. <laughs> I'm like, I'm worried for you, man. <laughs> um, that is one of the greatest blessings out of the whole deal. Um, not only that, my name's no longer on the piece of paper, and so it's no longer at risk. But now we're operating a debt-free business. Now, so for this little scrappy startup that was every nickel, diamond dollar just to earn the right to go do some more, to be in a position where we have no debt um, is such a freeing thing. And that debt load was one of the challenges, of course, where you're going. You're investing in that. So you're building a new community store. You take out the loan when you, um, uh, you're building it out and you start paying right away while that store is ramping up and starting to earn, you know, cash, get cash flow positive um, and you have to carry it along. And again, we went from the eight stores to 25 stores in 18 months. That's a lot of ramping up. <clears throat> and the what, mansion was tough. What impact did getting rid of the loan have on, on you, your own personal psyche? Uh, what, what, what getting that feedback? Um, <laughs> I, um, if I turn that off, I don't know how to do that. My, um, uh, see if I can quit that out there. Um, the, on the personal, um, yeah. What, what impact has that had or, or did that have on your decision-making to sell? Was the desire to get out from underneath the personal debt in any way influential in your decision to sell? No. Um, was it a that weight? floors me. <laughs> <laughs> um, was it a weight? weight? Yes. Um, did it keep me from sleeping at times? Absolutely. Um, and um, the one comfort I had is I didn't ask anybody else to sign on the bottom, dotted line. Nobody else on the team, shareholders, executives, had, had ever signed for anything at risk. So anything that I had was mine. Now, that said, that means my wife was in the boat with me, too. And um, give her credit for being willing to sign up and to trust me to go do this and that she believed in me enough because the house is important to her do you think? House is a home is a big deal um and so she deserves a lot of credit for that. does that mean it was always easy for her through the process no um and um but she was able to um with her belief that um, I wouldn't quit till we get it right, um, allow me to go sign up and do this and take that step. So it, this could have ended totally different, John. It could have been you're doing a podcast on the guy who lost everything and now trying to figure out his way. Um, but wow. God's done the things I couldn't have done for myself. Um, certainly, as I said, I had experiences that. Um, I call it my uh, Maple Street MBA is that hmm. the last company I was working for, worked for 10 years, 
We went through, I think, five CEOs in 10 years. There's a turnaround all the time. And we kept bringing in these consultants. We'd bring in Bain and Deloitte. And people are experts in their fields. You know, they got their MBAs. And so I got to work with all kinds of those in this turnaround process. And, and for me, it was my whole MBA. I mean, I, just because I was in human resources, I ended up working with the operations team and the marketing team and, uh, and the real estate team. And, and so, um, and I ended up getting responsibilities for operations with HR. And it's that whole MBA process prepared me for the time. And I will say this, that the, the one thing I don't know is how to stop. That's why we ended up with, keep moving forward. We had the one store, the second store, and now the third store, Murray Hill, then fourth and Chattanooga and testing those questions is my wife who knows this is true of me is that um, I just don't know how to stop. Um, I think we'll hey, did you out. tell her, did you tell her the, did you tell your wife the, the risk that she was signing up for when you went from whatever it was, eight to 25 stores. I mean, did, did, was she aware of the ramifications of not getting it right? Um, she knew the house was on the line, yes. Uh, and that, uh, we could, if it didn't work, we could lose everything uh, that was, we had. And so, yeah, it, and, but that was a growing process for her too. Um, uh, I think if you talk to her eight years ago from today, um, it was a process of learning. Which I apologize. I don't know how to turn that out, John. Um, That's okay. Um, they, her attitude um, over the last couple of years versus we started out, is she, she'd grown in her belief in Maple Street and what it could do. She'd seen the lives that had changed. Um, I think she saw how I grew in the role, um, which was really critical um, as well. And um, I mean, there was a point when we did that fast growth process that I, um, I realized that this job could outgrow me. I might would have to go hire a CEO to run my company. Um, I'll tell you, that was built a fire under me. I, I read a lot, but I read more in the next six months than I'd read in a long time. Because to me, there's, there's thousands of counselors out there waiting to give you counsel, and they're in books. Um, and so I read the stories of people who had been there, and they'd done it, and the experience went through, and the things that they, they got wrong. And um, if I was going to be the CEO, I had to get myself ready. But she'd grown in her belief that I could, could go do this, and I'd say that um, she trusted me to, to go get it right. And, okay. What's on your bookshelf right now? What, what would you recommend other entrepreneurs read top three books? Um, extreme ownership. I, um, I always, I teach a class called managing um, uh, levels of initial freedom. So this book is out of print, but you can buy it um, uh, still on Amazon. It's by William Onkin. It's called managing management time. And he talks about how you go from being the manager to managing managers and what that looks like. He has in there five levels of initiative and freedom. We've actually expanded them to seven levels of initiative and freedom. And in this course, I teach my team, you're either moving up the levels or you're moving down the levels. 
Nobody's allowed to stay um, uh, at, at level one, which is wait till told. And a lot of times leaders think if people at least are level two, ask what to do, that they'll come ask me what to do. They're taking some initiative and they're good people. And I teach my team, no, if people are coming to ask you what to do after they've been with you a while, they know what's supposed to be done. That's at least passive rebellion. They at least have to come and recommend. And when we talk about acting advice, I filter everything through those lessons of initial freedom. People lean in, get it. What are the seven levels? Just real quick, go from the bottom up to the top. Sure. It's, um, so level one is wait till told. Level two yep. is what to do. Level three is recommend and take resulting action. Level four is act and advise immediately. And then level five is act and advise routinely. So you get up to that level, you know what your boss wants you to do. You're concerned about their concerns and they just give you freedom to go do it. So if not, you move down the scale. So if somebody's at level one, wait till told, they either move up to level two. Um, and I, I tell people, nobody's allowed to be level three, but at least this, I tell if you're at level one, wait till told, I'll say, hey, if you have nothing to do or you don't know what to do, you come ask me what to do. Now, a minute ago, I just said you can't be there. But if you come ask me, my question to you, John, is what do you think you should do? Which I took you to level three. And I'm going to make you give me an answer. I'm going to teach you how to think the way that we think about things. But if you don't move up, if you stay at level one, wait till told, then you move down. And level zero is wait till forced. And I'm, this, this is what gets to, hey, I came to you before. I told you you can't wait till told you. At least have to come ask me what to do. That's so important. I'm writing this down on a little piece of paper. What in the business world they call the first write-up, right? Or the second write-up, I guess, because you had the second one there. And then the, the next one is um, wait till separated. Level negative one is wait till separated. If we've talked about it and you didn't get concerned about our concerns and you didn't take an issue responsibility, then you can lose the right to be on the team. So people either move up or they move down the levels. I filter everything through that. I have a very simple leadership philosophy. Hire, hire good people, teach them what right looks like, get out of their way. They'll do amazing things. On our team, if you need to be managed, I'll do it, but it'll be miserable for both of us. But if you have initiative and freedom, you get freedom. My team, my executive team, they go do good. I don't know what they're doing every day, every week. And I don't need to know that. I need to know that they think the way we think. They know the goals to go. They'll get us there because they take initiative and freedom. They know who we are. How did you announce the acquisition of Maple Street to your team? Well, the executive team had been working out for 10 months, so they all knew it and they all participated um, in there. So I did a Zoom with the community leaders. I did a Zoom video call um, that was – um, <clears throat> my communication then. Now, I had talked to a few people ahead of time um, to that have been part of it, and I wanted to talk to ahead of time to get them up to speed. Um, <clears throat> but then I had the Zoom video call where we could see everybody, make sure everybody was there. Um, and then I had to walk them through what we had been trying to do and how we wanted to live out our mission. Um, and then um, I had individual calls with every single community leader after the Zoom video call. Um, and we talked about what this meant to them individually. Um, they all got to participate, as I said, in the transaction in a significant way. How significant? As a percentage of an annual compensation, would, would it have been? Some of them, some of them got 80% of their annual salary. 
Wow. And so folks in that role, these are life-changing amounts. And Mm -hmm. that's what we wanted to do. What was their reaction when you told them? Tears, some of them. Um, There were some that had been on the Maple Street story initially that um, is a little bit of a shock because we've been doing this on our own for years. Uh, And um, they um, were pretty comfortable with, we've been doing it on our own for years. They didn't know everything that I knew about, you know, what, if we were going to go serve more communities, what that would look like. They certainly had no awareness that I put everything on the line. Um, you know, that's not theirs to carry. That's, that's mine uh, from there. So uh, for those, it was a good, had to take them through the um, uh, change curve. Um, you know, immediately change is scary and the unknown. Um, I found we had to start communicating immediately much more often and, um, and trying to get more detail. Um, I think we still can do that better and we're trying to find more and more vehicles which communicate to people and keep them connected. We had a significant change that happened afterwards and that added stress to the whole change process. So we'd actually been open only six days a week. We were closed on Sundays. Um, and the reason that was is when we first started out, that church where that pastor I said challenged me didn't have a lead teaching pastor. I was an elder in the church, and um, so I was <clears throat> making sure we stayed the course. And we opened the first door. I said, "The only thing I've got is Sundays. I have to to be there. So the best way to do is firewall. It just don't open." The community came around in such a way we didn't need to. You know, we were doing it six days a week. It was fine. About a year ago, though, um, our lead ambassador, chief people officer. Um, and um, uh, uh, I realized we needed a more sustainable leadership model. We only had two leaders in a store because that's what we could pay for, a community leader, assist community leader. With our growth, we really needed, I mean, we were doubling the size of the company, um, you know, in 12 months, and we were taking out these assistant community leaders. So now the community leader didn't have anybody to back them up, and uh, we needed more depth and breadth. So we came up with a four leadership model that gave a step and breath could support a large, um, uh, a fast growth um, pattern. At the same time, you have to pay for it. We found that we decided a year ago, the best way to pay for it was um, to listen to our guest. And our guests were telling us, can't you open on Sunday? Can't you be there when I can get there? And so we um, uh, had made that decision. But we didn't move on it because that takes significant resources to, to hire, train, and implement uh, those leaders and then implement it. Um, you're investing beforehand. And so we're going to wait till that transaction happened. Um, and so after the transaction, I announced we're going to change our model, go to here. Um, but I had to be clear with them is this is not Cracker Bear telling Scott what you need to go do. Scott and Tara had figured this out a year ago. That's what we're going to need to do. Um, and then Javier, CFO, helped us put the numbers to what that looked like. And then secondly is, because it had been such quarter we were, I had to take them through the process to help them understand how this actually was going to make their life better. Because initially they're like, you just messed up my life. And I actually ranked all the community leaders by level of risk who would we might lose in this change process? 
what I'm excited to say is we only lost one community leader out of that whole change process. Hmm. Um, and so this is, um, been probably the biggest change for them, but also they're also seeing that it is a huge personal benefit for them. One, they have more leaders they can depend on in their store. Um, so they have depth and breadth and they can take the time that they need. Um, secondly, um, they're paid a percentage of EBITDA as profit every period. And so, because now we went to seven days, that EBITDA number went up, your bonuses go up. It's like, okay. Um, now I get it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Should have led with the numbers, man. but and see for us that's it's a little bit of a challenge because those things are important um we pretty talk about our our community leaders get our mission so so well in fact after the transaction is done crackborough had the market research team go across um multiple markets we're in and talk about talk to uh, stakeholders internally and externally even talking to guests about maple street and what they came back with was amazed how everybody understood who Maple Street was, what makes them unique and what drives us from people, uh, from community leaders down to hourly team members to even guests all understood all that. And the strength of the brand that they were shocked with and excited at the same time, um, they wanted uh, us to be reminded of this is because your people are not just driven by um, monetary benefits, as you go through this change process, if you don't keep that mission core to who you are, um, it's going to devalue the brand. So, yeah, it's been interesting because money is important at the end of the day, but these folks get the mission so much that um, if, we, if, I, if I don't start every conversation with these community leaders around our mission, um, they're immediately like, where are you going? because uh, we're here for a reason and uh, it's been a learning fantastic well I, I appreciate you sharing the story with me I'm just in awe and uh, so grateful for you doing this last question did you buy your wife anything when the transaction went through for all of her was there a trophy involved I bought her a new house there you go yeah. there you go um, we went and bought a new house and good for you um, paid cash for it and <laughs> filling it up <laughs> That's awesome. Scott, I'm so grateful for you doing this. Uh, it's for people who have been um, in one of your community locations. Community I want to get stores. the community stores. Uh, they know the experience. I'm looking forward to having my first experience now because uh, you got me uh, very hungry as a result of describing the work you guys do. So thank you for doing this. Is there, if, if people wanted to sort of learn more about you or, or the company, is there a website you want to point people to or what, what's the best way for people? Yeah. They certainly can go to our website, uh, maplestreetbiscuits.com. Uh, and on there, so I said that we're a part of people's lives. So community leaders, we give them the opportunity to tell their story. So on our website, there's a section where they tell their story. They type that up and they could put it online. I never look at it. I don't review it. It's not my story. It's theirs. So whatever their story is, they put out there. If you want to see the stories of people who are part of Maple Street and what they're doing, go to the website and you'll hear where they've told their stories. That's awesome. It's so, uh, it'll be so inspiring to read that. Scott Moore, thanks for joining us. Great to John.
Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.